Hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that. Meet me over in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, so it's at the very front. If you're new to Bible study, we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 26. All right, Deuteronomy 26. If you don't have a Bible, they'll be on the screens. We got them on the rows. Hey, I am so, so glad to be here with you today. I'm really grateful you took the time out of your schedule to sit under God's word and worship together. We are in the second week of a series that we've called Cultivate. If you're new around here, what we normally do is we preach through books of the Bible and then we take a pause to address certain topics that we feel like are, are really just important to the Christian life, and this is one of them. So this whole series, it's just three weeks, is about cultivating generosity inside of all of us, because if you spend any time at all in the teachings of Jesus or in the Bible, what you'd find is the thing that made the church different than every other institution that has ever existed in the world is generosity. The great historian Rodney Stark, if, you, if you're a little nerdy like I am and you study history, here's what he says. He wrote this really complex book on how the early church went from a few followers on the fringes to becoming a worldwide movement, movement in just 300 years. And he, he writes this whole historical book on the evangelistic strategy of the local church. And here's the conclusion he came to. They didn't have one. They didn't have one. They simply lived generous lives. They gave of themselves, and they became the fragrance of life to the world around them, so much so that Constantine, the emperor of Rome, ended up converting to Christianity because he said, we don't even care for our own poor, and you care for ours. You love us. When the plagues came, they loved the people around them. Here's a question I have for you. Paul talks about this, this fragrance of life. He says that you are either the fragrance of life to the people around you or the stench of death. Here's my question for you. What if generosity is what we were known for more than anything else in the world? What if when your coworkers smelled you, uh, uh, metaphorically speaking, they smelled the fragrance of generosity on you and it made them begin to ask questions about why you were so different? What if your neighbors, even if they don't believe in your faith, they knew that you were the kind of person that they could call on any time because they knew that you would create the space to help? Here's one thing we all know. Generous people are contagious. We, we want to be around people like that. Matter of fact, most stats show that generous people are even happier. According to most research, here's what I found, that people that are generous are on, on average 23% more likely to live a satisfied life. People who don't give at all, they, they tend to be 29% of the time, they tend to be happy, while people who are generous tend to be happy 46% of the time. And 80% of generous people found that their life was meaningful, whereas only 60% of people that are not generous found meaning in life. The bottom line is this. Generosity is one of the greatest gifts you can cultivate in your life. And that's what all of this stuff is about. So let me just set the record straight from the very beginning. We're not talking about generosity because we need anything from you. We're not talking about it because we're getting to the end of our budget year and we're in the red and we're trying to make up a deficit. I'm going to get into this later, but matter of fact, we're not. We're in the black because you've been generous. And matter of fact, we're going to give away some of our funds because of your generosity. We're not doing any of this because there's a need around here. We're doing this because we're about discipleship and making disciples and we believe that holistic discipleship forms the whole life, and this is part of it. Now, if this bothers you, let me give you an out. Don't give us your money. If anything I say or anything we say bothers you, don't give us your money. Here's my one, my one question, though, or my one request, is that you would be generous somewhere. Because 
I believe that as you're generous, joy overflows out of your life. So just give somewhere. The second thing is, is I don't want you to check out. I want to ask you, don't check out. Sit here, stick around and listen to what God has to say through his word. Today, what I want to do is I want to teach you four principles out of Deuteronomy chapter 26 that I believe will revolutionize your life if you will grab onto them, internalize them, and begin to do them. So with that in mind, let's jump into Deuteronomy 26 verse 1. Here's what he says. Moses says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, pause for just a moment. Let me give you a little background. You need to understand the context of what's going on here. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible in this thing called the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Bible where Moses, the author, is setting the stage for the history of Israel. This is a monumentous moment for them. The next book of the Bible is the book of Joshua, where Joshua is going to take the reins from Joseph. They're going to cross over the Jordan River, and they're going to go into the promised land. And right before that, right before that, Moses stops them. He gives them the law, which Deuteronomy in Hebrew literally means the second law. He gives them the law again, and he repeats it because he wants them to set or reorient their minds around what is happening. They've come out of 400 years of waiting waiting for a breakthrough, waiting for God to do something in their life, waiting for God to fulfill his promises that he made to Abraham 400 years ago that they would be a people that would, that would be as numerous as the stars of the sky and that God would be with them. And here it is, here it is. For this people, they're about to cross over the Jordan and enter into the promise. No more wandering around in a desert of despair. No more wondering if God was going to come through. It was all about to come together. Y'all, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about how sweet that moment must have been for them. Think about your own life. Have you ever waited so long for God to fulfill a promise in your life? Maybe for you, you're single. And you're still waiting on that day when you'd finally find your spouse. It feels like 400 years of, of desert despair and loneliness. For some of you, it's the endless feeling of never measuring up. Ladies, I want you to know a secret about your husband or the guy sitting next to you. The, the, the greatest insecurity that every guy has in the world is that you will find out one day that he is a fraud, that he doesn't feel like he measures up, that he always feels insecure, and he's always trying to prove himself because even though the people around him think that he's made it or he's successful, he knows the recesses of his own heart, and he knows the things that you don't know about him, and he feels empty inside. Maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you're just waiting for a breakthrough. It's a promotion at work or a kid that comes to faith or it's a spouse that will finally start to love you back. See, it's 400 years. 400 years of stories being told of, of the torture and the slavery that they had went through under the oppression of the Egyptians. It was generation after generation and they're finally about to experience the breakthrough. You know, I really can't appreciate this, but here's, here's a modern-day equivalent of how I, how I feel like this must have felt. It must have felt like an African-American man walking in and seeing Wakanda for the first time. For me, as a, as a white guy that grew up, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not a big Marvels fan, and it's just another Marvels movie to me. And everything in my life looked like me. Um, every superhero growing up looked like me. Even I feel like they, they created Thor to look like me, right? <laughs> But imagine growing up and every role model and every superhero and every baby doll you saw didn't look like you. 
And for the first time, you walked into a movie theater and you felt seen. You felt like there was a, a, a something to look up to. You felt like there was a role model to see. You felt like for the first time there was a superhero that you could identify with. It was almost like the breakthrough. It was the breakthrough of years and years and years of American history that just seemed to walk right past you and not ever look at you. And they finally paused, rolled back the tape a little bit, and you got to see it and experience it, and you felt valued for the first time. That's how Israel must have felt. It was like it was all coming to fruition. They had remembered the stories of Abraham. They had remembered the promises of God. They were told about the burning bush and how God showed up in a holy place and declared his name. He said, I am the great I am and that my promises would come through. They heard their parents talk about the plagues and how God had rescued them from Egypt and taking them away. And now Moses says in verse one, when you come into the land, that's a declarative statement. It's a promise. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. See, here's what you have to see. The nation of Israel, they didn't own this land. They didn't take this land. God gave it to them and he was lavishing his love on them because they were his kids. That's what you do with an inheritance. You save up to pass down to your kids. Here's the big idea. God has given you everything you've ever had because he loves you. You don't own it. You steward it because it's a great gift. That's what you should take as the application. Verse 2. You shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. See, they're about to become rich with possessions and resources. They're coming into a new land that they're cultivating. And God sits there as he's painting this picture of what's to be. And he tells them, hey, as you come in, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to work. Notice that they're going to harvest the ground. But right after you work a little bit, I want you to reflect and give back. Y'all, here's the deal. God was reorienting their minds to the truth they worked really hard, yes, but God was the one who gave them the land. You get that, right? Listen, you worked hard. You don't live in North Metro Atlanta if you didn't work hard. I, I, get, like, I get that. You are uber talented. You worked really hard to get to where you are, but you know what you need? You need to understand that it's not just you working hard, but it was God working hard through you. If you're sitting back today and you're thinking, now I'm here because I'm a self-made man, that's a problem. That's a problem. You are where you are because God had positioned you in a place to be where you're at, and then you went to work with that. Verse 3, and you should go, you should go to the priest who is in the office at that time and say to him, I declare today that the Lord your God, that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. Now watch this. The way you change your mind, the way you change your mind about your stuff is to reorient yourself around the truth. Notice, notice that they made an oath. They repeated the truth back to themselves and to the priest that it was God who provided for them. You know, there's a story that, about Alexander the Great that goes like this. They said one day when Alexander the Great had just come through one of his conquests, he makes his way back into Athens 
And as he's making his way back into Athens, simultaneously at the same time, there's, a, there, there's the poor who had gone to the palace to go get their daily rations of food. And, and as they've come out with their daily rations of food, Alexander the Great comes up to one of the poor guys and he says, hey, you, you give me your food. And the guy looks back up him and he's kind of in despair and he takes a couple kernels of his food and he gives it to Alexander the Great. Well, Alexander the Great turns back around to his treasurer and he says, hey, he gave me two kernels of food. I want you to give him two pieces of silver. And the moment that it all kind of comes into shape, the poor guy understands what's happening and he starts to offer up everything else he has to the guy. But by that time, Alexander the Great was already gone. You know, the reason why I say that is because honestly, that's a picture of what most of our generosity looks like. What we don't realize is we're the poor guy that was already going to the palace of God's kingdom and God was the one who provided everything to us. But underneath the surface of our lives, we have, we have a heart that doesn't really trust. So we look to the king who was given it all anyway, and instead of giving it back to him, we just give him a few things. We give him a few things because honestly, at the end of the day, what we don't realize is that God is standing in the gaps. God is standing in the gaps ready to bless us, and he doesn't need anything from us. He wants something for us. See, God, God didn't want his people to live to live a life of always feeling like they were the ones that provided for themselves. So he built up a rhythm of trust. He built up a rhythm of trust that would make them or force them to understand that God was the one who provided everything all along. Yo, God's not trying to control your life. What God is trying to do is set you free. He's trying to put you in a position of trust on him. Because he wants to provide for you. Which leads us to principle number one that I want to show you in this text, and that's this. It's this idea of first fruits giving. Y'all, that's what's going on here. God wasn't trying to rob them of their resources. Watch this. He was trying to stop their resources from robbing them of their joy. Listen, most people hate when you talk about money. Most people hate when you talk about money because we have an unhealthy relationship with money. If you get anything today, here's what I want you to get is God doesn't want you to be divorced from your stuff. He just wants you to have a proper relationship with it. There's nothing wrong with your stuff. See, there's something wrong with how we interact with it because what we end up doing is we end up missing out on the blessings that God actually wants to do through it. Just the other day, I was having a conversation uh, with my friend Jim and, 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 and listen, Jim wanted me to let you know, like he's not the hero of every story, but he, and, and he's a hero to me. In a lot of ways. I look up to him. He mentors me and we're talking. And, and here's what he says. He says, Billy, I wish I could go back to 20-year-old Jim and tell him that the pursuit of success and the accumulation of wealth will never satisfy me the way that I thought it would. He said, I got to the pinnacle of my career. And honestly, I had more than I ever could have dreamed of. And at the end of the day, it didn't fulfill me. And then, then I quit my career. We bought an assisted living home, moved to Alpharetta and started blessing other people and started volunteering at church and giving my life to that. And I'm happier than I've ever been. Y'all, we've, we've heard the stories. Jim Carrey, who said he wished everybody could get rich and famous so they realized that it's not worth it. Or Tom Brady, whose life seems to be crumbling right now, got on 60 Minutes, looking like Thor, after winning 76 Super Bowls. And he says, man, there's gotta be more to life than this. Listen to me, there is more than life than the accumulation of stuff. Joy is not found in stuff, it's found in having a proper relationship with your stuff. And the way that you do that is by giving first fruits, giving to God. 
First fruits giving literally means the first tenth of what you have because what it does is it forces you to trust God to provide the rest. See, God didn't tell the nation of Israel, just give me 10%. God told the nation of Israel, give me your first and your best and trust that I will provide the rest. And as you do that, what ends up happening is you end up being released from the bondage of your stuff and God's joy flows through you. I want you to hear me say this. God wants to bless you richly so that you can be a blessing. But God's blessing isn't primarily found in stuff. It is primarily found in a relationship with him and a healthy relationship with your stuff. So you need to learn to trust God and then train your stuff. You need to become a worshiper before a consumer because worship helps you to retell your redemption story. It helps you to be truthful about the stuff that you have. When you give your first and your best, you make a confession back to God that I trust you. And you paint a picture for the world around you to see that God will provide for you. Here's what you need to know. God doesn't want generosity from you. He wants it for you. I mean, think about the logic here. Think about the logic. God owned the land that he was giving them. God owned the land. He gave it to them. That means that he doesn't need anything from them, right? There's something deeper going on here. Write it down. God is not after their stuff. He's after their hearts. And the thing that tends to be in the way of your, stu- or your heart is your stuff, You know, over the course of my life, I've had the privilege uh, of traveling to a lot of different places. I've gone to many, many, many countries in the world, and most of them are countries that are, 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 are very poor and desolate third world countries. And there's nothing more humbling than walking into a, walking into a village and going into a mud hut in the middle of a slum of somebody who makes less than a dollar a day, and they come out with this big, joyous smile on their face as they take a two-liter bottle of Coke that you know, that you know probably took a week's worth of their wages, and they open it up, and they pour you a glass, and they serve you. Y'all, the first thought that runs through your mind is, how in the world could I take this? And then you realize the joy is in the giving. See, for many of us, we think that they're the poorest people on the planet, but they've got something figured out that most of us don't. They are the richest people on the planet because they're relationally rich with God and with you and they find their joy is not in the abundance of their stuff. Their joy is cultivating this life of generosity through others. Maybe, just maybe, the great 20th century philosopher Biggie Smalls got it right. More money, more problems. You ever wonder? You ever wonder why We have more stuff than anybody else in the world, and yet we have the highest divorce rates, highest suicide rates, highest opioid epidemics. We have the greatest um, antidepressants on the planet. Anxiety is at an all-time high. Have you ever wondered why? Maybe joy is not found in the accumulation of your stuff. Maybe we've been lied to. Let me just ask you, who owns you? Who owns you? Seriously, who owns you? God is jealous for your heart because he wants to set you free. See, God doesn't want generosity from you. He wants it for you because because he knows, he knows that this stuff that you have in the world is trying to buy your heart. So why not today? Why not today be the day that you begin to trust him? Like the old proverb says, you know when the best time to plant a tree is? 20 years ago. Second best time, today. What if today was the day that you started sowing seeds so that you can reap a different harvest tomorrow? 
Listen, you can't change you can't change the way that you've lived in the past, but you can build the margin into your life today so that you can begin to reap the harvest of joy that's coming tomorrow. And I know, I know, because I've sat where you are, that some of you have been truly hurt by churches who have taken advantage of your money in the past. Listen, I get that. I totally get it. But I want you to know we're not doing any of this because of, like, we're trying to get more money around here. We're doing this because we care about your heart. We're not trying to meet a budget. Again, like I said, matter of fact, our church practices generosity by setting aside 10% of our annual budget to give back to our community and give to around the world. We teach this stuff because God wants your heart, not your money. We teach this stuff because we realize that our, the accumulation of our stuff and an improper relationship with it will destroy us. Like Tim Keller says, and I know i got to hit my Keller quote every week, but I do that because he really is one of the wisest men in the world. He says sin, sin's not primarily because we take bad things. Remember that word, that Greek word epitomia means an epic desire. Matter of fact, sin in the Bible is not normally bad and good things. It's taking a good thing and making it a God thing and then it becomes an idol that destroys your life. Jim Elliot, Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's about worship. By the way, did you notice that the entire setting of this passage is set around a worship service? Look at the end of verse 2 again. As you bring it to the altar, he says this, you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. That's the temple. That's the tabernacle. That is the place. It's all about worship, which leads to principle number two. Principle number two is your first should go to your local church. Now, here's the good news. The church is the only institution on the planet that God guarantees to bless. Hey, let me give you a little historical context here. This Old Testament that you read, the, this book is 66 books written by 40 different authors. The Old Testament, God blesses a group of people that goes from Adam to Noah over to Abraham, then to David. And he creates these covenants where he's building a people for himself. That people is the nation of Israel. Okay, the nation of Israel is God's blessed people that when you read the New Testament, Paul would tell you if you read Romans chapter 9 through 11 that the, the Old Testament people of Israel is a picture of the church of God. That, that you and I are this thing called the church, this institution that has been set apart uh, by God that he would bless. The picture in the New Testament is that Jesus would die for his church. He called the church his bride, that he would come and he would redeem and he would give her a new name and he would make her beautiful. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, I will bless my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Y'all, the church in all of its messiness is God's bride. And you are the church. So the next time you want to talk bad about the church, realize that you are God's institution that he's blessing. Now watch this. When you give your first fruits back to the local church, you're collectively, you're collectively partnering with God to change the world. And it's a beautiful partnership in the gospel. So when you give, when you give of your stuff, you do things around here like you support missionaries. Missionaries in the Dominican Republic that we help to fund who are starting orphanages, creating schools, and planting local churches to build holistic restoration in those places. You're giving to Just One Africa who goes to Kenya and they, they started this water filtration process that ended up bringing and clean water to people that are now they're selling the water they've created schools 
couples and child partnerships, and they're doing a church planning efforts, and they're making a massive eternal difference. When you give, you give to people like we do in Southeast Asia, where we send out a missionary who gets to work on college campuses, and we're seeing people come to faith in droves. You're giving to Bald Ridge Lodge. You're giving to building up a city in, in a way that God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Rick Warren. Rick Warren went to the UN one time and he says, hey, if you will let me, I can solve the AIDS epidemic in one year. And of course, the UN laughed at him. They're like, you're out of your mind. Even if we had the resources, we don't have the infrastructure to do it. Rick Warren says, yes, you do. I can tell you how we can mobilize people to do this today. He says, God's church is the greatest army on the planet. And if you would just work through them, there's billions of them all over the planet right now. Do you believe it? Do you believe that God is going to unleash your resources to change the world? That God's plan to change the world is his church. It is the vehicle by which he wants to bless the world. Guys, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, God has blessed you richly. And he didn't do it so that you could get fat on your own stuff. He did it because he wants to multiply your resources to build his church and change the world. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells this parable, and the parable kind of goes like this. He says that an owner is about to go out of town, so he gathers 10 of his employees, and he says that he wants to give them resources so that they can reinvest back into the world to build businesses. So the owner goes out of town, and he comes back, and he comes back to check on his resources, and the first guy walks up, and it says that he, take, he took his resources, and he multiplied them, and then the owner looked at him, and he says, well done. Well done. You've been faithful with little. I'm going to make you faithful much. By the way, what's fascinating to me is if you study the passage, the little that the owner talks about, in modern day equivalents would be about $150,000, which makes me think little to God might be a lot to us, but God can bless you richly. So, so the next guy walks up, and, and, and he, takes, he takes what the, the manager had given him, the, the $150,000, and he goes back to him, and he says, hey, I didn't want to lose any of your money. Like I watched all my friends, they invested in Bitcoin, it's a terrible disaster, so I held on to it. I know inflation's high. Just hold on to it. It'll get better. And the, the, the guy comes up to him. And, and Jesus uses this word in Greek that means wicked. He looks at it and he says, you're wicked. Honestly, whenever you first read it, you're like, how is that wicked? He didn't do anything wrong. He just held on to the money. You know, when you read the Bible, there, there's really two forms of wickedness. There's, there's wickedness that we all know, like you hurt a child or you kill somebody. That's wicked. That's what we call that. That's the sin of commission. But there's a sin of omission that, that God finds to be wicked too. Because you know one day, one day you and I are going to stand before God. And God's going to look at you and he's going to say, I blessed you richly. The talents, the gifts that you have, you were born into a country in a context where literally you could live the American dream and you could become anything that your heart's desired. I gave you all the resources in the world. You lived in comfort and in ease. And you look at him and he says, and what did you do with it? How wicked is it if we look back at God and we say we didn't do anything? So you, you're starting to paint, see the picture, what Jesus is saying? It, there's something wicked about the fact that God has blessed you richly to be a blessing, and when you do nothing with it, when you do nothing with the gifts that God has given you, it is kind of wicked. Edmund Burke, you probably heard the quote, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The sin of omission is that God's people do nothing with the resources that God has given them to invest back in the world and make an impact on it. Listen, guys, 
I want to see the world changed in my lifetime. And I believe that God can do it. I believe that he can use us to partner together to make this happen. I believe that God can take what all of us individually can never do, and collectively, I believe that God has a plan and a purpose, but it's going to take all of us going all in with him and invest it back into his kingdom to make his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Principle three. Generosity is a reminder of your freedom. Look at verse five. Verse five says, and you shall make response. Before the Lord your God, a wandering Aramean, which is modern-day Syria, was my father. Now, let me pause, and I want to give you a little background here because I want you to connect the dots on what's going on here as they're retelling this story. Their father, this wandering Aramean, they're actually talking about their grandfather, Jacob. If you know anything about Jacob's story, Jacob and Esau, they were twins that were born, but Esau, being the firstborn, came out of the womb, and Jacob held on to his legs. So if your name is Jacob, by the way, it literally means in Hebrew, heel grabber or the great deceiver as a transliteration. So you're welcome. Well, Jacob lives his life of deception. He gets to the point which he, he takes his mom and, and they, they devise a plan to rob his brother Esau of his birthright and trick his aging dad that he is his brother. After they find out, Jacob has to flee for his life and he flees to a place called Padam Aram, which is modern day Syria, meets his uncle Laban. His uncle Laban deceives him into consummating the marriage with the wrong woman, which I'll let you figure out how that's possible. And then he ends up having to work 14 years to get his proper wife. He has two wives. They have a family that grows to about 70, and they make their way to Egypt, and that family of 70 turns into a family of a couple million. Now, you might be thinking, what does that have to do with anything? Here it is. God took the most unlikely of stories, one that you would never imagine, in order to orchestrate a plan for his redemption. Yeah, I think about my life. My mother's been addicted to meth my entire life. My dad comes from a lineage of abuse. He's abusive. And one day my great-great-grandchildren are going to retell a story about that time when God saved me and changed the entire trajectory of generations to come through the tragedy of my past. But he reclaimed the story. What is your story? What they were doing is they were retelling the story because they needed to know that the, the story had a larger meaning. Do you realize the one thing that they didn't know that you do know is that the Exodus story even has a larger meaning? You realize that the Exodus story, it mirrors the book of Matthew because what you see in the book of Matthew is that you and I, you and I have been walking in slavery. You and I live in a land that's been corrupted by sin and we are longing for our freedom from bondage. And the book of Matthew says that as you wait in a dry and weary land, there's a better Moses that's going to come. He is going to do what Moses could never do. He's going to live perfectly. He's going to do what Adam could never do. That better Moses, his name is Jesus and he's going to redeem you. And until that time when he releases you from bondage. By the way, he is going to give you the land that is flowing with milk and honey, which is heaven on earth. Do you see it yet? You have to understand your story in the, in the middle of a greater story where you have a redeemer who came so that you can live. So before you move on, understand your story. It changes everything. So their father, who's in Padam Haram, he went down into Egypt and he sojourned there few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated him harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. 
Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us the land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now. I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given you to do to your house, to you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. I want you to notice that retelling their redemption story is what set the ground for their freedom and worship. Y'all, it's really healthy for you and I to do the same thing. We need to take the time to reframe our story and put it in its proper context. Because if you don't, if you don't take the time to do that, you will either fall into despair because you won't see the connections of God's redemptive history that God can take the brokenness of your past, like Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. If you don't, you will fall into despair or you will become prideful because you will begin to believe the lie that you are the author of your own success. I'm breaking my quota. Tim Keller said it like this. But listen, he just spits wisdom. When your stuff is your idol, success goes to your head and failure goes to your heart. God wants you to avoid both of those traps. And the way you do that is you worship. Because worship frames the gospel in the middle of your story. Listen, guys, You are free, and the greatest danger to your life is that in your freedom, you will walk right back into Egypt. Everything in this world is vying for your soul. And when you have an improper relationship with your stuff, what you end up doing is you end up walking right back into the taskmaster that God has saved you from. The reason why they had to retell their story over and over and over again is because they were in great danger of walking right back into the slavery that God had saved them from. Why do you think you're any different? I want you to get this so badly. We don't need your money. God wants your heart. And I'm so convinced that your heart follows your money because you invest your time, your talent, and your resources into the things that you love the most. I want you to reframe your story because when you do, when you get that generosity is an overflow from Jesus and that he owns everything, it changes everything. When you get that Jesus is the better Moses that came down from heaven to earth and he put the law into your heart, he came to set the captives free, he came to give you joy, and he came to give you a good land. When you get that, what you understand is that God already owns it all anyway. He's not here to take your stuff. Reframing your story trains your heart to tell a truer and a better story. Don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie that this world is all that there is, that you need a bucket list. You realize, just like Israel, you are just passing through, and you don't ever have to go back there again. See, reframing your story puts everything into its proper perspective and proper context because it reminds you that God is good, and he's doing a good work in you. Israel needed to reframe their story so that they didn't go back into bondage, and you have to do the same thing. You have to understand that the arc of history 
The arc of history is working towards your redemption. And you're not the main character. You're an extra in God's amazing grace. See, this is why cultivating a life of generosity is worship. Write it down. When you give back to God, it's an opportunity to position yourself back into the middle of his story. Now watch this. You will inherit the earth. Do you know why? Because God gave his first fruits. See, God's never going to ask you to do anything that he didn't already do himself. The first fruits of God is his one and only son. That God himself would give his son to become the sacrifice for sin in your place. And every single time that you give back to God as your first fruits, what you're doing is you're responding to worship because you know that God is true and good and he wants to give every good gift to you. He already proved it in his son, Jesus. Here's the last principle. God has blessed you to be a blessing. Look at it in verse 12. When you have finished paying all the tithe, of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing. By the way, when, when we complain about tithing, let me set a couple records straight. A tithe is literally a tenth, okay? A lot of people were like, that's a lot. Well, if you actually go, historians will tell you, most biblical scholars will tell you that the, the nation of Israel gave a tithe three times. Now, I'm not real good at math. For you guys are struggle with math like I do, that's 30%. They did that because they believed that God would provide, and every time they did, God blessed them richly. So as you give the tithe, here's what he says, giving it to the Levite, to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. Imagine this. Imagine if nobody in our city ever went hungry because of you. Imagine if the church was known for that. You know, sometimes I sit up at night and I'm like, God, where are you? What are you doing? And I imagine sometimes God is sitting up in heaven being like, I was going to ask you the same question. He's like, I already gave you all the resources. I've already rigged the whole thing. There's 2.5 billion of you. I think you could take care of all of it if you just work together. Verse 15, looking down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel. See that? And the ground that you have given us, as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing milk and honey. I love this. It's all supposed to be full circle. As they blessed God by worshiping him and giving, God was going to bless them by giving them more. And listen, this is not the prosperity gospel. I'm going to get into that. I'm going to get into that next week. It's not the prosperity gospel, but when you get, when you actually start to get what's going on here, think about it. When you're a good steward of God's stuff, he tends to bless you more. Let me just ask you, if you were God, would you give you more? I think about this like my kids. You know, every week, um, my kids ask for lunch money. And, and when we make them lunch, they bring to school. So I'm like, okay, maybe you need some lunch money. So we'll give them like 20 bucks, and three days later, Emma, my oldest, will be like, I'm out of money. And what she doesn't realize is we can actually go online and look at what she spent it on. I'm like, you ate ice cream? For lunch three days in a row, spent $20 on that, guess who ain't getting no more money, right? Because she took the thing that I gifted to her and she spent it on stuff she wasn't supposed to. That's what, sometimes I wonder, like, if God's really my father, if I were God, would I give me anything based on what I do with the stuff that he's given me? See, see it, it really is that simple. Let me, let me just ask, do you know how much God loves you? 
It, it all centers back on this. He gave his one and only son for you. When sin separated you from his love and death was your curse and your destiny, Jesus stepped off of his throne in heaven, put on flesh to live your perfect life and die your death to become your substitute. He gave up everything so that you and I could live with him forever. He's provided all good things to you. And this is why it's so important to reframe your story because there is a fine line between religion and the gospel. And it's the motivation of our heartless. And I don't ever want you to live in guilt. There's nothing you could ever do to make God love you any more. And there's nothing you've ever done to make God love you any less. Because it's not dependent upon what you do. When Jesus got up on that cross, he didn't say try harder. He said it is finished. True love is an overflow of being loved. That's where generosity flows from. You see, when you reframe your story properly... You understand that God made you to be the blessing of the world. Here's what I know. I've seen it. The world's not going to change when the government taxes the mess out of you and takes your hard-earned money to redistribute your wealth to change the world. It's not going to work. It will work when God's people freely and generously give to change the world. It's the way it was always meant to be. It's what changed the first century world. It's what can change the world today. So give it away. Let God use you because you are going to inherit the earth. Y'all, God's blessed his church to be a blessing. My dream is that one day in metro Atlanta, there are no more needs because collectively the resources of God's church meets every need in our community. I'm telling you. I'm telling you, you will never, ever do this if you believe that it's yours. But if you understand the principle that everything you have belongs to God and he has blessed you richly to be a blessing, you stop thinking that you own it and you become a steward of God's amazing grace to change the world. Paul David Tripp said it like this, we are instruments in the hands of a redeemer. So when you look at your stuff, your time, your talent, your treasures, do you give your first and your best back to God? When you think about church, y'all, I know church is an investment. We ask you to attend one and serve one. I know that's like three hours of your day. I get it. But we don't do that because we need more volunteers. We do that because we believe the best way to cultivate a life of generosity is for you to volunteer. We, we do that because we believe that you, that you have an eternal perspective whenever you do this. You know, when we first started this church, I, I was sitting down with my father-in-law, and he made this offhanded comment. He's like, wait, wait, wait. You're going to start a church, and you're not going to ask people to just serve, you're going to ask them to pay you to serve. He's like, I, I, that's mind-boggling. It, it is. It's kind of crazy if you think about it. But the reality is, is you only think it's crazy that you work for free if you don't have an eternal perspective. Because you're not. You're investing back into a better kingdom. You're painting a picture for your kids to see that God is good and he's going to provide for you. You're painting a picture for the world to see that joy is not found in the accumulation of stuff. It's found in Jesus himself. When you give yourself to building God's kingdom, something beautiful happens. You're not just watching babies. You're investing. You're not just holding doors. You're cultivating a lifestyle that says, God, my first and my best is going to go to the local church and I'm going to give and I'm going to serve you. Yes, serving and giving is an investment, but it is the best investment you can make with your life and you need to start building the margin to do it. Here's a question I ask for you. As you leave here today, I want you to really wrestle with this question. Am I living for the temporary or am I leveraging for the eternal? 
Charles Spurgeon, I love this. Is there nothing to sing about today? Then borrow a song from tomorrow and sing what is to be. Plant the tree you wish you'd have planted 20 years ago today. And watch the fruit of freedom begin to grow. In the most famous verse in all the Bible, let me land the plan like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Listen, God's not trying to condemn you. He's trying to save you. He's already given you everything freely, and he wants to lavish his love upon you. Generosity. Generosity isn't about filling line items on a budget. It's about your joy. You know, when you don't cultivate a, generos- a life of generosity, the only person that gets hurt is you. The only person that misses out is you because, listen, and I mean this, and I don't mean this like harshly, but God will find somebody to build his church. He already promised it. He's inviting you into something beautiful. Every stat shows it. Every secular stat shows that generous people are happier. They make a huge difference in the world because because of that, I hope this excites you. God wants something good for you. He wants you to experience the joy of trusting him. He doesn't want anything from you. He wants things for you. He wants you to be happier. He wants you to have more joy. He wants you to live in freedom. And the heart of the gospel is that God commands us to do stuff because he loves us, not because he needs anything from us. He loves us. I'm telling you, just like Israel, God isn't commanding you to be generous because he needs anything from you. He's commanding you to be generous because he wants you to unlock the doors to blessings and joy. If you don't believe me, test me. Test me. To follow Jesus is risky. Yes, I know. It's scary, but it is worth it. When you take your hands off of your time, your talent, and your treasures, and you say, God, it's yours, he fills you up because he can't fill up hands that are already full. When you trust him, he provides. The gospel is that Jesus has already done everything necessary to save you. He is the truly generous one, and there's no better investment you can make with your life than going all in with him. Listen, Jesus already gave up his life to give you freedom, and he wants you to invest back into a kingdom that will never end and to stop investing in one that has an expiration date. We live in an ever changing world that when we invest into it will destroy our hearts but we have a never changing God who has proved his love for us by the cross and his power over sin and death by the resurrection what do you have to lose by going all in with Jesus how sweet it is to trust in Jesus to take him at his word what if today what if today was the day that you did that, that you put your yes on the table and that you, you went all in. Because I'm convinced that some of you still haven't experienced joy because you're kind of trying to control. You're kind of trying to control a world that can't be controlled by you, but you can put your trust in the one who knows it all.